0: You know, before we, um, before we get to the message, I just want to share a quick testimony this morning. Uh, There's a long form. I'm going to do my best to make it the short form this morning. Uh, last week in, um, in worship practice... Uh, Leah was saying that there was one song in particular she was going to need help with, He Will Hold Me Fast. Remember that remark you made? Just made it in passing. She said, I get really emotive at this song, so somebody else needs to be ready to kick in their voice in case I get a little bit, you know, emotional. So I was thinking about that, thinking, you know, I like that song, but I don't necessarily get emotional over it. And it made me stop to think, you know, am I not connecting with it as I should? And I share this testimony for that reason. Sometimes if we just pause to think about the songs we sing and then think back over our lives, we'll find points of connection that will help us connect to those worship choruses or worship songs, and I thought about that all week, and a thought came back to my mind. As many of you know, I was saved in the military while serving in the Coast Guard, uh, Bay, Washington, Search and Rescue Station, uh, going out there in a boat and rolling around and stuff, and there was an incident that happened right about the time I got saved that had a profound influence on me, and thinking about that that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, really, really connected. Long story short, in the two years I was there, we did about 650 rescue calls. It was pretty busy, and, and most of them were pretty, you know, routine. Some of them were pretty nasty, and this particular one uh, was the one and only boat we lost. And in the two years I was there, I had, we had a boat sink on us. I happened to be on it when it sank, and so it's the strangest feeling to be standing on a boat and then the boat's not there anymore. It's just gone, and it was really, really bad, and... Uh, the the, the rest, I wasn't scared because I knew the drill you know for pulling a guy out of the water. Um, they would pull up next to me, spin the boat sideways, and then they'd grab me and pull me in the boat. But we'd never done that drill in this kind of really bad weather. We had about 15-foot swells that were coming through uh, that part of the inlet, and um, I really started to get scared because the timing of him turning the boat, the guy driving the boat, was wholly dependent on his perception of me Relative to the bow of the boat, well now the bow is going up and down, and I started to think he can't he can't do that. He has no reference point for making the turn, and you know I'm watching the boat go up and down. I'm going, that thing is going to smash me, and I started to really get scared and think about what do I need to do? You know what do I need to do? Of course the answer was nothing. Me moving around was the last thing he wanted, so I just said, okay here I am in the water, and he did it perfectly, and he snapped the boat sideways, and this great big kid in the back about 18 years old total gorilla just reached down and grabbed my collar right here he got float coat and and work shirt and un- he got everything and he picked me up and just boom right in the middle of that deck and I thought about that moment when that guy grabbed me and I knew he would not let go yeah that's what salvation's all about he has us he has us And now I sing that song with emotion. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you would. Titus, chapter 3. It's our final morning in this letter. I hope you have found it helpful. I've gotten a lot of feedback, and I really appreciate that. Really appreciate the feedback. Um, This chapter we're looking at this morning, the third chapter, is a really great one to consider, uh, and I would call it... Balance. It's a good chapter on balance because all the way back to the midpoint of the first chapter, um, Paul has been giving this these lists, lists of instructions, things to do, things not to do, or things for lo- to look. In the case of leaders telling Titus, he needed to look for these, you know, characteristics or behaviors, or or don't look for you know these shouldn't be there. All of the, these lists. And um, then he moved into different groups in the church in the second chapter, old men, young men, old women, young women, uh, kids, you know, all of these things, these lists, right? And it's really easy uh, when we're reading our Bibles and talking about these lists that um, we can forget why they're there. We can start to think about them like they're a law. It's really easy when we're given these kinds of instructions in the New Testament to kind of create, you know, a new law. We had a law in the Old Testament, created a law in the New Testament. And these, these things are reasonable, you know, being beyond reproach, being faithful in our marriages, being self-controlled, hospitable, sober-minded, free from gossip, all these things Paul, Paul mentioned. They're all, they're all really good, but it's, there's a tendency to um, make a law out of them. And that's not what this is about. And we've talked about this as well. It's so important to know that what this whole letter is about, in fact, I would argue what the whole of the New Testament is about, is entering into a relationship with Christ by which his character is formed in us so that we can then express that character to the world. And we touched on this last week. We said, for example, that one of the reasons Paul gives these these behavioral patterns or these instructions, if you will, is for the purpose of making the gospel attractive. He used a word that meant to make the Christian walk, the doctrines of our, of our faith, attractive to the world. It's all about Christ's character being fashioned in us so that we can then display that, that character to the world. It's not about conformity to law. The Old Testament had a law that God gave the people of Israel. He said, if you're going to walk in relationship with me, you have to to keep this law. This is entirely different. That had a time and a purpose. This is entirely different. This is about facilitating his character in us so that we can express it to the world. And that's really, really important to keep in mind. And that's really where we pick up the text, the chapter one, and we'll read through the seventh verse. Titus chapter three, verse one. Remind them, Paul tells Timothy, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing consideration for all men. For we were once ourselves foolish, disobedient, deceived. "...enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." That being justified by his grace, we might also be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, thank you for your word. Fathers, we look to your word this morning. We do, Lord, long. We long to see the character of your son fashioned in us. Because, Father, we know that's what we need. Father, we know that's what the people around us need. What this world needs, Lord, is, the, is to see the character of Jesus. Jesus to see the nature of God. Father, we can't do that on our own. We can only do it, Father, by the power of your spirit, and the instruction of your word. So help us to that end, in Jesus' name. Amen. So having described all these characteristics of church leaders, people in the church, different groups of people, uh, Paul offers several additional characteristics in the opening verses of this chapter. And then from the middle of the chapter, he um, He makes a shift. He makes a shift towards the essence or the heart or the soul of what this is all about. Because we can do all of the things on every one of those lists. We can go back to chapter 1 where he talks about leadership. We can go to chapter 2 where he lists the different groups in the church. And we can do all of those things and it will be well and good. But ultimately, eternally it'll be of no significance. And it certainly, while it may have a temporal benefit to those around us, will be of no eternal value. Fascinating... um Discovered something last night that I had never known. Many of you know, of course, that C.S. Lewis came to prominence uh, during World War II, famous author, came to prominence because the BBC had him doing weekly radio broadcast to encourage the the British people during all the, the dark days of the Blitz and all that was going on in World War II. Well, tragically, tragically, uh, at the end of the war, in the process of you know, recovering everything and, and restoring everything, the, Brit- the British government, the BBC, erased all those tapes. They erased them so they could use them for something else. I know, tragic, isn't it? Erase all these tapes of C.S. Lewis talking. But one survived. I don't know how it survived, but one survived. Fascinating, the one surviving tape of C.S. Lewis on the BBC is talking about this very thing. That we can do all kinds of good and fine things... But if they're not born out of a redeemed, regenerate, Christ-filled heart, they are of no eternal value. In fact, ultimately, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, they will ultimately lead to the same kind of problems that got us in trouble in the first place. You know, you can be, you can be full of all kinds of um, charitable thoughts, and you can do charitable actions, but you do that long enough out of, out of a human center, a man-made center, eventually that leads to things like pride. And, you know, anger at other people for not doing those kind of things. Even the best of intentions born out of a strictly human heart will eventually come to a dead end. I thought it was fascinating, the one thing C.S. Lewis said that was left, and it was that. So in these verses, Paul is coming to the basis from which everything else should be expected to flow. And the only basis from which really we would want them to flow. So he says in verse 4, I just want to go through these verses. In verse 4, Paul says, When the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Just listen to that verse carefully. The kindness of God, his love for mankind appeared. In the incarnation, in the birth and the life of our Savior, God was demonstrating his character. This is why Jesus could say, if any man has seen me, he's seen the Father. In the incarnation, God was demonstrating, revealing, causing to appear his very character. And he talks about that character using terms like kindness, basic goodness, decency. The kind of character you want to be around. I know that some, some who grew up in, in, in sincere Christian homes but grew up with these lists the lists being the essence of what it was to a Christian rather than the character of Christ I know for some of you the, God might not be a person you do want to be around based on your understanding of who he is you might not want to be around him I'll admit I've struggled with myself a lot There's been a few times moments of despair or anger or doubt or fear. I have thought, is there a plan for eternal life that doesn't involve actually having to be around God the whole time? I've been there. Well, that's, that's, not, that's a result of an inaccurate picture of who God is. He's one of the first things Paul says about him. He's kind. He's good. He's decent. And the second thing he says is, and you're going to like this one, this again, still in verse 4, his love for mankind. That's, that's one word. You're probably going to recognize it. It is philanthropia, from which we get our word philanthropy, love of humanity. Again, that's a struggle for some who grew up with what we might call a legalistic perspective that God actually likes people. He actually loves people. That's why his son came. That's why he sent him. He's characterized by a love for humanity. That word's only used twice, by the way, in the New Testament. That word, philanthropia. Once it's used here, and this might give us some good insight into what it means, it's also used in Acts 28 too. You know, when Paul got washed up on the beach, the island that we presume to be Malta, right? And it says the locals... The the local barbarians, I love it. It talks about them like they were barbaric people. The local barbarians did what? They built a fire and they received that. That meant they opened their arms and welcomed them. These poor, you know, survivors of a shipwreck. They got washed up on shore. And the locals extended philanthropy to them. They expressed basic kindness and decency. They cared for them. That's a description. Of our God, Verse 5 is one of my absolute favorites. Some of you who are older will remember singing this verse over and over and over again. Verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How many remember it? Few of us, oh, it's not by works of righteousness that I have done. This is not intended to be a solo. (laughs) But according to his mercies, he has saved me. That was the whole song. That's the whole song. Oh, it's not by works of righteousness. You should all know it by now. (laughs) But according to his mercies. That was the whole thing. But over and over again, it was a good thing. That God got burned into my mind and eventually made its way to my heart. That it is not by works of righteousness that he, I, he has saved me, but according to his mercies. Mercy. There's a powerful word. Mercy. I spent a lot of time this week talking about mercy. You know, mercy, we kind of equate it with grace. And we, we talk a lot about grace. We Interact. Google Choruses are hymns about grace and you get a list about this long, you know, including the big one at the top, right? And that's good. They should be there. But look for hymns about mercy or worship chorus. We got one, right? And that's like it. And the rest of them are kind of indirectly. We confuse the two, and they're not the same thing. Mercy is a word that we need to give a lot of thought to. Um, It's the word "eleos," and it's a really old, old word. It's been around a long time. Uh, It's it's significant to look at it, though. Uh, Mercy is a lot like ideas of sympathy or empathy. The word means to appreciate or to understand somebody else's suffering. to to grasp the importance of somebody else's difficulties, which is basically what words like sympathy and empathy mean. Sympathy means to suffer with someone. Empathy means to enter into the suffering of others. But those words, words like sympathy and empathy, they talk about the action. If we say someone is sympathetic as an attribute, it's because we've observed those actions in them. Those are primarily actions. But mercy is that heartfelt emotion, that thing at the core of our being that motivates us to do those things. To be merciful is an expression of the mercy which is at the core of one's being. So when the text says, when Scripture tells us that God is a God of great Mercy. God is full of mercy. Or his mercies are new every morning. That's talking about the essence of who he is. So when we make that cry, Lord have mercy, which is not confined to the Southern American states, Lord have mercy is actually one of the great cries of, of, the, of the Greek mystics of antiquity. The great monks spiritual leaders of the first centuries, they would cry out, Kyrie eleison, again and again and again. It's one of the classic orthodox chants, Lord have mercy. In fact, they, they got so good at it, they could say one word while they were exhaling and the other word while they were inhaling, so they never had to stop saying it. And it became an element of their very thinking, the understanding that God is a God of mercy. But when we say, Lord have mercy, what are we really asking? All we're asking, Lord, have mercy. We're saying, God, I just want you to be God. Lord, I just want you to be who you are. I'm not asking anything out of character. When I come to God with a hurt, with a need, something is wrong in my life, and I'm, dear God, I want you to. When I cry out, Lord, have mercy, all I'm saying is, God, in this situation, I just want you to be who you are. I'm not asking anything special. Lord. Be Lord. God, be God. And notice the text says, according to his mercy. This is all done, ac- that's a beautiful word, we've talked about it before. It's a word that's actually translated against in some places. Now how can something be like for something, like according to his mercy, and against something at the same time? Well, th- the best way to get the visual on this particular word is think of an extension ladder, right? Right? I don't mean to insult anybody, but there, you know, most of you know, there's two kinds of ladders. There's step ladders you can put in the middle of the room, and there's extension ladders you can't put them in the middle of the room because they have to lean against something. There's just one side, right? And so with an extension ladder, you have to rest it against the wall or against something. And if there's not something to rest it against, it's useless. Well, in the very same sense, everything that flows out of these verses, everything that we would ask of God, everything that we would hope of God rests just like that against the security, the solid hope and knowledge we have of his mercy. It all is according to his mercy. Verse 5 continues with two actions that are according to his mercy. That is, they rest upon it and they grow out of it. The first is the washing of regeneration. Now, that is taken by most scholars to be a reference to baptism. It is that, but it's more. It is the washing of regeneration, which is to say that when we are born again, when we are made anew, we are in fact made anew, we are changed. Having our sins forgiven doesn't just wipe the slate clean. It begins the process of changing who we are. Being born again changes us. And we're changed, it says, by the renewing of the Spirit. This is so marvelous. Paul reminds Titus, the Cretan churches, and us as well, that the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to the work of salvation. There is no salvation without the Holy Spirit's work. So it is the regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not simply, yeah, I got saved and that's it. No, when I got saved, it started a process. When I got saved, it was a beginning point for a new life, which, thank God, is still going on, because I still need work, as do we all. Verse 6, it's a renewing of the Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I don't know about you, but that's an exciting verse to me. Paul talks about the fact that God poured out his spirit upon us richly through Jesus Christ, his Savior. It's obviously an allusion to the upper room when God poured out the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down and manifested himself, and the whole crowd outside heard what was going on, and they got all shook up. They're hearing these people praising God in languages they don't know. And boom, that day, thousands are added to the church because Peter stood up and said, this is that which God prophesied through the prophet Joel to make real his presence among his people. Here's the amazing thing. Paul wasn't in that room. Paul was not in that room. And yet he could say, here's the amazing part. Paul could say, God poured out his spirit on, this is Paul's words, us. Paul could speak as though he had been in that room. And if Paul was included in the group that was in that room, that meant his Cretan readers were included in that group. And that meant that everybody that reads this book, everybody that calls upon the name of Jesus, as if we had been in that room. So we are, we are inundated, filled with, touched by, made alive by, everything else the Holy Spirit did on that day, on the day of Pentecost, in the upper room, Acts chapter 2, everything that happened to them, we were touched by as well. And not, not drizzled. I don't do well when the recipe says drizzle the oil. I, I'm bad at that. I'm big, right? That must be the Greek in me, I guess. His spirit was poured out richly, richly upon us. Verse seven. That being. Justified by his grace, this is where grace comes in, having been justified by his grace, we might be heir, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that we might be made heirs. That is the purpose for which all this happens. You know, so many people talk about eternal life in the sense of living forever as if that's an end to itself. No, it's not. Personally, I mean, just to me, the thought of living forever is not necessarily a good thing. Somebody tells me, I got a way that you can live forever. I'm going to go, let me think about this. How am I going to live forever? You know, Somebody comes up with a, you know, some healing concoction that would allow human life to continue on indefinitely. I'd have to ask, in what condition will I be as I live on? You know, am I going to be like, I'm not going to use a number because there might be somebody here that number. You know what I mean. Am I going to be like older and not doing so well? You know, something in me says, what if I could be like 18 forever? No, that's not good either. No, that'd be bad, right? In fact, I really can't think of an age that I would want to live forever, right? Because I wouldn't want to be stuck in one place forever. I'm not going to ask any of you about your visual reactions that you said to that, although I will be tempted, Dahlia. Yeah. Eternal life is not a quantitative thing. It is a qualitative thing. It is life with Christ. It is life with this loving, merciful, caring, I really like to be around this person, God. It is a life described by Being at peace with everyone around me. Isn't that a marvelous thought? And perhaps the best thought at all, life at peace with myself. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. That's what we're talking about, eternal life. And that eternal life is to enjoy, he says, an inheritance. There is an inheritance we have. I don't know about you. When I think about an inheritance from God, okay, what will that be? I can't get too excited about it. I'm clueless what it means. But then I read that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Wait a minute. That means that whatever inheritance Jesus receives, I'm part of that. That's got to be good. Whatever inheritance Jesus receives, that has got to be good. Because he's not like a minor inherit. You know, when the will is read and there's a person at the end of the list that gets five bucks? You know, that's kind of where I suspect I would be, right? But no, 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 no. We are joint heirs with Christ. We're up there to at the top of the list in the person of Christ. That is the reason for which we labor and strive. That's why Paul worked so hard. Remember, he said, if it's only in this life we have hope, we're of all men most to be pitied. Paul did not want eternal life without relationship. He did not want eternal life without Christ. Verse 8 circles back to where we started talking about our conduct and Paul talks about several things, but he really comes back to it in this simple phrase, engage in good deeds. We make this Christian walk way too complicated. In fact, he says in the next several verses, I'll let you guys read it, how all the things that we shouldn't get involved in, like endless genealogies and complicated stories and doctrinal disputes, and all, he says, don't even bother with that. Don't get involved with it. Engage in good deeds. Engage in the kind of behavior, I think you could, you could reduce most of these lists to a simple equation. What about my life makes the gospel more attractive to people that don't know Jesus? What about my life makes people say, I would like to be like that person? Because that is exactly what led me to Christ. What led me to Christ were two people who were at peace with themselves, at peace with those around them, and at peace with God. And I knocked on their door. They didn't have to come looking for me. I knocked on their door, and I said, what makes you guys different? Because you're flat weird. And by that, I mean, you're not like anybody else I know. And they sat me down, and they told me about Jesus. And I went out by the breakwater in Neah Bay, Washington. Gorgeous view looking across the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Vancouver Island, absolutely magnificent. And I asked Jesus into my heart, and here's the important thing about that moment. And I know I've shared this with some of you, some of you before. Um, when I did that, based on my perception of who God was at the time, it wasn't very well developed, you know. When I, when I did that, Lord, you know, here I am, I'm all yours. I thought he said no. Because nothing happened. You know, I thought something would happen. Give me a shooting star, anything. Give me some sign, nothing. And so... Um, I knew the next morning I'd have to face the guy I had talked to the night before. And so um, I waited until there was beginning in his office. He was second in charge on the, on the station there. Knocked on his door and came in. Of course, first question he asked me was, well, how, how did it go last night? What decision did you make? Because I hadn't told him the decision because I hadn't really made it yet. I had to go out and sit by the breakwater to make it. So He said, what did you decide last night? And my plan is to say, well, Bob, I asked Jesus into my heart, and he said no. Seriously, that's where I was going. And he said, how did I go? I said, well, Bob, I asked Jesus into my heart, and I stopped there. Because when I told him, something happened. The something I had been looking for the night before, but didn't happen, it did happen when I told him. And then, of course, he just went, yeah, that's great, and he went crazy, you know, which is cool, too. But for me, it was that moment when I shared it with somebody else, when I realized That my salvation experience was something that was intended to be shared it was the beginning of a journey of his character fashioned in me and yeah I need all these instructions because I'm a lousy you know judge of what to do myself so I need instruction of his word I don't want to rely on my gut instincts that's not that's not good I had the instructions of his word I'm told what to do what to avoid the kind of person I should be and shouldn't be. Those are essential things, but they're only essential to the end that they help him fashion his character in me, and that's what it's all about. Father, I thank you for your word this morning as we, as we come to it and we look at it. Father, the prayer is simple. Lord, um, you have saved us, not according to works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy, the kind, of, the kind of being that you are, loving, caring, concerned for us. You are indeed merciful. The steadfast love of the Lord never changes. His mercies never come to an end. Thank you for that, Lord. So, Father, as we're about the process of working out who you are in our lives, or more accurately, is we're about the process of allowing you to work out your character in us. Father, my, our prayer this morning is really simple, that you would show us how to um, get ourselves out of the way. Help us, Father, to lay aside this all-too-human uh, intent to want to do it ourselves, you know, show me what I have to do. Lord, it makes me think about that moment I was in the water. And uh, I needed to be saved. And what I needed to do was nothing. What I needed to do was trust. And thank you, Lord, that in that moment you sent people that knew what to do, that they pulled me out. And, Lord, thank you that you have pulled all of us out of the sin and the darkness that was us to lighten life in Christ. And help us, Father, to live lives that show that to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.